Hey, and welcome to Deeper Than Data with Ben Rush, the podcast where we get to know the scientists behind the research to find out they've always been interested in design, whether it be graphs or fashion, and how they like to communicate COVID information. Or that they buy three kilograms, aka 6.6 pounds of Taza 100% dark chocolate to attempt to satiate their desire for the food of the gods. Maybe the last one's just me, your host, Ben Rush. This episode is a stunning example of scientists having multiple interests and hobbies. I became interested in this guest because she had a mobile, like the ones in Baby Cribs, of DNA in the background of one of her interviews when discussing COVID on the news. While researching our guest, I just saw one chic outfit after another, so I knew I had to have her on the podcast. This was such an enjoyable conversation to have, and I think you will agree at the end, I just had to ask her how she would stylishly dress as an octopus. Speaking of stylish things, our guest today wore a signature necklace that makes a bit of audio rustling noise in the first half of the episode. I'm still learning what makes for good audio, and honestly, necklaces were not on my list of things to watch out for. So you'll hear a bit of rustling throughout. Just imagine you're underwater or maybe back in the womb because you might just be that comforted after this conversation. And without further ado... Let's walk the runway via an audio podcast with Anna Bento. Anna, thanks for joining me on Deeper Than Data. How are you? Good. Thanks for having me. I'm very excited to do a deep dive. All right. Wonderful. Me too. Uh, first, can I get your name and the pronouns you prefer? Yes. My name is Anna Bento, and I'm a she, her. Fantastic. And would you mind giving us a physical description of yourself? Yes. So I am uh, Portuguese, uh, which means that I have the traditional dark hair. Um, I have. I tend to have very short dark hair, but with the pandemic, I now have this in-between bob wannabe. Uh, that's not quite right. Uh, I am 5'6". Um, I'm probably a little bit heavier than I normally used to be. Also, I blame the pandemic. Uh, I have uh, brown eyes, and I tend to smile a lot. Yeah, fantastic. I'm also with you on the longer hair. Uh, our haircut, it's not that dissimilar at That's this point. That's right. Um, and also with the extra pads oh right goodness. now in the pandemic. Yes. yes. Um, all right. And then what are your roles on Indiana University's campus? So I'm an assistant professor uh, of epidemiology of infectious diseases. Uh, I have two, well, I have three affiliations, in fact. So I am affiliated with the School of Public Health, the Epidemiology and Biostatistics Department, but I also have an appointment in the Ecology and Evolution uh, in Biology. Uh, and then I also have a role in the interdisciplinary um, informatics, which is computer science uh, and uh, epidemiology. Um, as an advisor to a lot of the NRT, which is a program for NSF. Science has too many acronyms. So, NRT-NSF is the National Science Foundation NSF Research Traineeship. 
So it's an acronym within an acronym. So I want to propose this new acronym, BAT, B-A-T, which stands for BTU, a.k.a. TLC, or British Thermal Units, also known as Tender Loving Care. So I hope you can use that in the future. Just remember, BAT. So those are my main roles uh, at Indiana University. Fantastic. Where is your office, out of curiosity? So my office is in the School of Public Health uh, and is on the on a side where there are no windows, which for a School of Public Health is a little bit strange at times. Yes. Yeah, I am familiar with that side, as is my old stomping grounds. That's right. Uh, I think you're far enough away, though, to not smell the chlorine from the pool. That's right. So if not for the, all of the the people listening, but for you, I am very close to the C100 auditorium. So C113, uh, which was requested by me because I really liked the number 13. Uh, so I had the option of, of choosing uh, an, an office that ended in 13. Yes, so I took <laughs> Perfect. Yeah, I was curious if you either got chlorine or if you're in biology, uh, the smell of fruit fly media. Ah, uh, yes. No. Um, so I, I, I spend a lot of time in biology as well, but I, I chose to have a, an office in the School of Public Health. Uh, okay. All right. Moving on and kind of on that same topic, um, could you give us a two-minute research pitch of yours? Yes. So uh, I'm an infectious disease ecologist. I'm very interested in describing the magnitude uh, and the shape of an epidemic. So what I mean by that is that I want to understand why a disease takes off in a specific population, how fast it takes off, and how long it sticks. Uh, so then what that means is that I'm interested in the biological side of the epidemic, so the type of, of pathogen and the host that we're looking at. But then I'm also interested in the public health side, which is the side that allows for that particular epidemic to take off and how long it sticks. Uh, so those are kind of the, the things that I'm very interested in. Um, lately, uh, by default, I've been working a lot on COVID-19. Uh, and unlike my usual type of work, I've been focusing on uh, human behavior. So I've been looking more to understand why people do what they do and how that's affecting uh, the trajectory of the epidemic. Uh, my love affair with infectious diseases normally takes me towards childhood diseases like measles, mumps, and whooping cough, uh, whooping cough being my absolute favorite child, um, because precisely of that uh, curiosity of why is it emerging in a place but actually completely endemic in others? So those are the types of things that I like. Cool, fascinating. Um, yeah, I saw you like light up when you're talking about these infectious diseases, which might be counterintuitive for the audience. Oh yes, completely perverse. Completely <laughs> yeah. perverse. And I, I get all the time when there's an outbreak, not with COVID, of course, let's clarify. Uh, but most of the time, uh, particularly when working with uh, whooping cough, which is in itself a really puzzling uh, disease system, uh, whenever there's an outbreak, my first reaction is perversely, Oh, tell me about it. Like, let's find out. So I, because I'm, I'm very interested, I think most scientists are, I'm interested in the kind of the why 
and the how. Uh, and, and that's kind of like what's, what, uh, what makes me excited. So yeah, so I light up because there's a mystery, right? Um, and I, I want to be part of, of, of trying to understand the solution or at least the mechanism. Yeah, I was taking infectious disease epidemiology when uh, the Ebola was outbreak was going on in Liberia. So it was a similar feeling. It's like, oh, yeah, it's juicy, and I want to talk all about it. And then people are looking at me like, why are you actually excited about this? It's like, we, you do need kind of these freaks that are excited about this to help combat everything, um, and it won't turn a blind eye to it. That's right. So uh, there's a difference between, I think, excitement and, and rubbernecking, right? So we are not kind of like, at least my approach tends to be, I'm excited because I want to uh, ask a bunch of different questions to see if I can help, but I'm not kind of um, interested in, you know, in the misery of others, right? It's precisely the opposite. I get excited because I want to see how far I can help and, you know, lend, lend my skill set, which, you know, it's quite specific uh, to, to these kinds of Excellent. All right, I'm going to start going back at the beginning of your journey, and I like to start doing that uh, with my favorite question of who was your first crush? So that's, that's a fun question. Um, how far back are we talking about? Like early, early? I've gotten answers um, high school, but if you can remember something even earlier, I think my first crush was like... Yeah, so my very first crush was around five, was my best friend Margarida. And I just thought she was fascinating. Uh, and we, to this date, we are friends. Uh, and I just like everything she did, I also wanted to do. We kind of diverted a little bit uh, during high school because I went to a different school, but we kept staying friends. And she's very different from me. She's not a scientist. She actually uh, rides horses uh, as a sport for a living. Um, so it's very different from me but very adventurous and uh, that, I think that qualifies as my first crush and then I kind of grew up a little bit and then I think that the one that I that I labeled as a crush right so it like when you actually start thinking oh maybe this is more romantic and less kind of like crushy crush uh, I think I was about 12 13 and he was a uh, one of my brother's best friends um his name was Raphael, also very different from me, uh, not academic at all, uh, but he had the, an awesome sense of style. Uh, and I just, I could, like every day I wanted to see what he was up to. Uh, so was, I think he qualifies as my official first crush, but if I analyze my life backwards, I think my, my friend Margarita was, was my first crush. Yeah. Excellent. I was curious too, like, did your appreciation of fashion start really young then? Like probably even before you had your first crush on Raphael then? Yes. So I have been obsessed with uh, fashion since I can remember. I think that uh, my mother probably stopped picking my clothes uh, right about the time I started talking. Um, I, I like clothes. I think they're part of who I am. Um, 
I don't, the, the things that I wear every day reflect my mood. Uh, and my necklaces are jingly kind of like reflect my personality. So they're kind of exterior in the exterior, quite loud. Huh? Uh, but, you know, quite classic in the end. So I, I've always been quite, quite interested. I also know how to sew. Um, and I've designed, especially when I was younger and I had more time, I designed a lot of my clothes. Um, and in fact, when I went to London to do my undergraduate in biology, I, I also applied to fashion school and I was accepted in fashion school. Uh, but then... I, I was not adventurous enough to actually pick that path. Uh, so I stayed in biology and the rest is history. Um, but it's definitely part of my personality. Clothes are definitely a reflection of me uh, as much as anything else that I do. Really neat. Um, yeah, I'll ask more questions about that because I feel like it's going to connect to your appetite for visualization of data. Oh, that's right. Yes. Color palette. Always hashtag always paletting. That's my mom. <laughs> yeah. That is something I need to work on because I love the, I love looking at just beautiful graphs, um, but I need to learn how to actually make those. And then I'm going to, I'm going to stay young too, because you were mentioning um, that you were academic as a kid um, and these other people helped bring you out. Were you, did you have your nose in the books from a very early age as well? Yes. So I was that weird kid that had bugs in her pockets. Um, and I was kind of, my, my eyes were always to the ground. So I was never the kid that was interested in space uh, because I always thought Earth was pretty fascinating. Um, so I very early on joined an entomology club and I volunteered at the Wild Wolf Endangered um, Sanctuary that was kind of not too far from where I lived. Uh, so I, I kind of had this gravitation towards um, maybe zoology at the time, but all things nature, really. So um, even though, to go back to my love of fashion, even though I was kind of obsessed with kind of dressing up, like never too dressed up, I also loved slumming it somewhere in the woods, right? So yeah. there's always this there's always been this juxtaposition between those two things in my life. Um, so, yeah, so always very interested in, in nature and the why of things. Okay. And where did you grow up within Portugal? So I'm a city kid. Uh, I was uh, brought up in Lisbon and I, I, I was born in Lisbon, which is the capital of Portugal. Um, and for those who are not so... Used to European geography, Portugal is the most Western European country and it's right next to Spain. Uh, so most people that are not from Europe tend to visit Spain and skip Portugal, but I strongly advise against that. Yeah, I've, I've heard that Yeah, Portugal is the place to go. Yes, very, very nice. Very, very nice. Very colorful. I, Lisbon has, on, has been on my list. I hope so. I hope so. Hopefully after this, you want to go even. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Let's see if you can be an accidental uh, travel agent. That's right. And if I wind up there, I'll, I'll tell whatever airline that I'm on that you should get a cut. That's right. That's right. <laughs> Perfect. Um, 
Okay, yeah, I'm curious about your jump then. You went from Portugal to London. Yes. Did you apply all across uh, Europe? No. So um, I started college in Portugal. So in, Portu so in Europe, medical school uh, is not a graduate program, it's an undergraduate program. So you start medical school at 18. So because I was... Uh, a good student, uh, there's this kind of social pressure that students that are in the science track, uh, they kind of apply for medical school. And it's really hard to get in. I'm, I'm not saying this to show off, but it's actually a lot of work to get in. So I kind of like went through the, that motion of, of medical school all along knowing I didn't want to do it. Um, but it's kind of like a cultural thing. My parents were very keen because it's like, it looks good if you go to medical school. Uh, also in Europe, you don't get in debt for going to medical school because it's free. Um, so I, I did one year of, of medical school and I very quickly realized that it was not for me. And then I, I started thinking that I wanted to do biology um, or fashion. And at the time, um, the only place that had three-year uh, degrees was the UK. So I thought, if I go to the UK, it's like I didn't waste a year. Um, so it was kind of like a practical thing. I thought, let's try the UK. Also, I thought the UK was a fun place to be. So then I applied for, for a few schools, uh, both in fashion and in biology, because uh, I had a portfolio, so I could submit the portfolio for, for, for design school. But I also had uh, the background in biology, math, and physics, so I could apply for, for the biology degrees. So then I applied for, I think, four biology degrees and three fashion schools. Uh, and then I eventually went to biology at Imperial College, which is a school in London. Yeah. And... I'm curious too, like you were mentioning, you were thinking about that fashion route. Did you ever, you probably continued sewing at least, but did you join uh, other clubs or any other activities that were more fashion oriented while you were in college? I was working at a, a store called Collection of Style Cause, and I ended up doing their um, windows, styling their windows. So that was like my part-time job that kind of uh, helped me survive through college so I would have some money, uh, but also it was kind of like my happy place. Uh, so I was not necessarily kind of doing fashion directly, but I was kind of creating more of a styling type route, which I did just for fun and for money, of course. Yeah. Is that creative outlet um a space where you can lose time really easily yes um but willingly not accidentally so it's definitely kind of like a, a time that i assign for kind of decompressing you know some people go for walks or uh, go for hikes or i don't know any other hobby for me that's kind of like my some people do yoga i sew or i design a new piece of clothing or something for the house um or i rearranged my living room 
or something like that. So I, I tend to kind of, whenever things get a bit too loud uh, or too hectic, I kind of like take some time and just do something that is more doing and less thinking. Yeah. So that's, that's the kind of approach. How many times have you reorganized your living room during the pandemic? Five times, five times. Uh, five times. So this, so this, but for several reasons, not just because I'm cuckoo, uh, but uh, but yes. So yeah, the sofa has has kind of gravitated. I'm looking at it. Um, <laughs> has gravitated five times. Yeah, into different places. But twice of those five times was because we during the pandemic in October. No, I'm lying. In December. Uh, we got a Great Dane puppy uh, who occupies a lot of space. So uh, the last two times were actually more like, let's create more space in the house to see if uh, the puppy doesn't end up, you know, destroying things accidentally. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure having a puppy now too is uh, a great time. Um, and also like just another thing to spend some time and joy on. It's... I have days where I'm like, what was I thinking? And then other days I was like, this is genius. Uh, but I have to blame my husband for that one. Because um, it was kind of around his birthday that I was like, he's been wanting, we have an older dog as well. So he, but you've he, been wanting a, a big dog uh, for a while. So it was kind of like, well, uh, now is a good time because we're working from home. So at least we'll be able to train her um, you know, more uh, in a in a more kind of like regimented way. Yeah, well, like getting a dog, especially a big dog, that was a decision. So then, what was your big decision to go from the UK over to Georgia here in the US? How about that segue, huh? Totally accidental. Um, I was um, I was doing my postdoc fellowship. Uh, working at Imperial, but not in the department that I did my PhD. Um, and I was presenting on bovine tuberculosis um, dynamics, uh, which is a huge problem in the UK. And I met uh, my soon-to-be new postdoc advisor at that conference. As luck would have it, he had done his PhD in the same place as I had, but 20 years before. So obviously I knew who he was, but he had no clue who I was, right? But he liked my talk. Um, and then at the end of the, the, the my seminar, he approached me and said, you know, um, it seems like you've been working on this project for a while. Are you kind of pretty much done and would you move to to the US. And even though my brother uh, had been in the US for many, many years, um, it was not something necessarily on my radar because uh, to me, London was home. Uh, I felt like, you know, stylish London, I'm so cool. Um, moving to Georgia was a bit of a, a strange move, right? So initially I was like, oh, I don't know, like the US, things are crazy in the US. I don't know. Um, but then I spoke to my husband and we were like, well, if we don't go now, we're probably never going to go. So it was kind of an adventure where we thought we were going to stay like a year, a year and a half. 
but here we are, right? So, <laughs> yes. um, and that has been, uh, I, I don't know if you're going to ask me this or not, but that has been kind of the the story of, of my life. I, it seems to me that sometimes, I always make the decisions, of course, but the situations end up presenting themselves to me in that way. So my PhD was not something I actively applied for. Then my first fellowship also was kind of like, oh, are you interested in bovine tuberculosis? I'm like, mm, not so much, but let's give it a go. So it's been like that, uh, a series of, of very interesting accidents that leave me to like make these decisions that so far have been okay. Um, I, I don't know, maybe in like 20 years, I'll look back and I'm like, oh, I should have taken the wrong, like the left turn instead. But it has been a series of, of curious accidents. And uh, not everybody has that kind of story. But to me, every time I reflect on it, I, it always makes me smile because so far, all the accidents have been good accidents. Yeah, I, me being in the PhD program that I am right now uh, is similar to you where it's like, well, I didn't pursue it that hard. I just checked a box for this program that I'm in and, you know, here we are. And But it's very, very happy, I guess not entirely an accident, um, yeah. but yeah, very happy with that, the results. And this podcast too, I just had the idea and threw it out to some people. Um, I have no idea where it's going. But it's a joy to do, and uh, it seems to be helpful for other graduate students and even uh, beginning faculty. So why not? So that was the question I wanted to ask you, because your PhD has nothing to do with a podcast that delves into, you know, why people do what they do and who they are, right? I think that's my read on on the podcast, right? And that people yes. are, and that we are not what we do. We are more than what we do, I suppose. Um, so I was curious because your PhD is nothing on this. So from what I understand, you're working in nutrition, right? Or at least in that realm. Yes. So I'll tell you what I was doing earlier this morning. Um, we recently had two undergrads join our lab. And so I am prepping uh, to teach them how MRIs work. Oh, so okay. our lab uses a lot of bioimaging techniques, um, which is even a, is an extension. You know, it's not directly relinked to nutrition right now. Definitely. But I am in the physics of MRI, which is extremely far um, from this podcast. But I, my drive to start doing this, I think, was reflecting on how many times... Uh, people just slightly more advanced in their careers helped me help make decisions in my life or yeah. kind of gave me these vulnerable talks about how they struggled, how they succeeded. Um, and I just noticed the people that I was always gravitating towards were the people who were really expressing themselves. It's not just facts. Um, and at the same time, I was becoming more interested in science communication. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm at the point where I'm, I'm, probably visibly upset if a presentation is not actually done with some art, if it's just, you know, facts being spewed. I'm um, right there. Yeah. A hundred percent. Yeah. And I think 
you know, the, the combination of all of that then just puts into the system in place of academia and science that it's not welcoming. You have to be extremely intelligent to be in there. Um, and if you don't understand anything, um, shame on you. It's not the, it's not the person's fault who is trying to explain this to you. It's yeah. the listener. And I, I just think that's uh, complete crap. So, um, yeah, I, I started this with the idea, uh, really it was, um, a guest who I ho will hopefully have eventually. Uh, she told me that sometimes when she's doing uh, her social media posts, it's you know while she's on the toilet, while, she, while she's got a couple minutes, um, which is so true. I think for all of us, that's right. You never hear that from scientists, um, and I just thought I have to share that message, um, and especially you know during during COVID when there's a lot of mistrust and uh, misinformation out there. I think being able to relate to a scientist is key, and it's one way to build trust um, and also start breaking down the uh, toxic environments within academia too. Yeah, I, I agree with that. So I'll, I'll go one step further. So um, there's a, a colleague who I consider a friend. Um, he's an evolutionary assistant professor at Yale. And his name is Brando, Brandon Ogubno. Um And yes, so he does a lot of science communication. He's amazing. And you should definitely follow him on Twitter. Um, if, if you align with, with what he says, of course. And yesterday, and he writes for Wired. Uh, and yesterday he had this post, uh, which was a kind of like a blog post, where he was talking about the need for us as a community to admit and highlight what we get wrong. And that has become incredibly important in the fast pace of COVID-19. Right, because uh, with all novel systems or novel pathogens, you know we get a lot of stuff wrong before we get it right. But it's this idea of keeping updating your priors uh, that is incredibly important, and it's part of science, right? It's not like things that uh, were dogmas uh, decades ago are now being revisited, not because we want to disprove our colleagues that. To show them that they were wrong, but because science is not static and it's kind of ever in motion, and that's why we are still doing what we're doing, right? And then hopefully in 20 years, it will be my privilege if someone tells me Bento et al. 2020 was completely wrong, right? Because that's the fun of it, right? So I think I think you're absolutely right. Uh, there's there's a perhaps still a, a misconception that because we are scientists, and here when I say scientists, I'm not just talking about um, professors in academia, like going all the way from students, right? Everybody that is inquisitive and trying to get answers of something, that you know everything and you're never wrong, uh, and that your knowledge uh, is, is not evolving, that is, you know what you know. That's, that needs to be debunked sooner rather than later. We are closer now, and I think one of the good things about, one of the very few good things about COVID-19 has been that, that uh, understanding that what we thought to be true last week is actually incorrect, uh, and actually making sure that you diffuse the new message very quickly to make sure that 
it doesn't it doesn't get uh, magnified. The other one is sharing knowledge, which sometimes I mean it's still a problem, right? This idea of silos and keeping keeping your knowledge to yourself with the fear of getting scooped. I think COVID nineteen has also highlighted the fact that. Things get better better done if they're done in teams and your data belongs to the world because some people might do it better or might not necessarily do it better, but look at it from a different lens that sheds new information. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I, at the same time, I've also been reading um, a lot of leadership books. Uh, I just seem to be drawn to that and within the past two years or so, I feel like I've uh, made pretty profound uh, steps in combating my perfectionism. Um, and I think also uh, highlighting the more vulnerable side of me and it's worked wonders for me. And so I think I, I go with that. Um, I was going to connect this to something you said and now I'm completely spacing. <laughs> so I'm sure we'll find our way back to that. <laughs> yeah. I, trust me, it was going to be great. It was oh, I be believe profound. you. I have no yeah. doubt. <laughs> um, but I, I, it, this actually does lead me into one question that I had for you, too, because you are on uh, lots of different media outlets, and a lot of the times we deal in the gray area, or it's just not the complete picture when you're trying to come up with something that's new, especially with an emerging disease. Yep. Um, how do you manage answering questions that want a yes or no answer? I start immediately by saying it's not a yes and no answer. I didn't that I didn't do that at first, and then you quickly regret. Not because you're worried people will say that you know you're not able to communicate easily, but because not saying that has consequences in the in my business, in my line of work. Right. So if you don't know, you should say you don't know. And if it's a not a yes or no, and most things in biology, as you'll know as well as I do, are a yes, but under certain conditions, or maybe uh, in this scenario, that scenario, but not in this other scenario. So I, I started kind of quickly going back to my stance in life, which is when I don't know, I don't know, and that's okay. And when it's not a yes or no, as long as you explain very clearly um, why is not a yes or no or a black and white, then it's be you're better off. And whoever is listening to you is also better off. Yeah, and that's, I think, hard to do for humans who can't understand risk that well. And, and it, I say, you know, humans who can't, as in all of us, are generally pretty bad at really understanding risk in the hypothetical situations. And so we want these hard answers and it, it, it becomes really hard when you want to see family or when, when's the safe time to go. Yeah, absolutely. So we're rubbish. We're rubbish at understanding probabilities. Even people who study probabilities and teach probabilities and work in the realm of probabilities, which is a group I belong to, um, it's something that you always have to really under think about uh, what you know what is risk, probabilities, and outcomes. 
um, and understanding that the conditions that you are evaluating these things change. And therefore, there's kind of like transient periods where you might not even be able to predict uh, what will immediately happen, right? So those are things that particularly, as you say very well, in emerging diseases, uh, as we see now in COVID, is, is very important. Um, and I guess to kind of answer your roundabout question, if I understood it, is whenever I got the question of, can you tell me exactly what day can we go out and do this? Or how many people, I got a question of, how many people do you think can be in the arena at the NCAA, right? Like you just have to say, I cannot tell you the exact number, but I can tell you that that number is not okay, right? So then kind of delve into a little bit of the concept uh, of what what make why it's not okay right and speaking of unknowns going back to your jump to georgia how did you fare with that transition um how was moving to the u.s for you so moving to georgia was a huge surprise a positive surprise um we're gonna get personal here now so go for it please so when I, as you know, uh, by now I was living in London for many years um, and my brother had been living in the U.S. for since 1996 because he's, he's a fair bit older than me. Um, so when I told him that I was coming to the U.S., he was very excited. But when I told him I was coming to Georgia, he was in a panic. He is, um, his gay is out He's proud. I love him. We're best friends. We talk every day. And his first reaction was like, if you go to Georgia, there might be places where I might not be able to be comfortable. Um, So we did a bunch of research before I accepted the job. And then it it came through that actually Atlanta and Athens are actually very um, progressive and safe which was the most, most important thing. Um, so I arrived on a Monday, on a, on a Wednesday, he was here. Uh, and he spent two weeks here to make sure that, and that we had that deal that at any point while we were in Athens or in Atlanta, if he felt that he was not safe, I would actually leave and go back to London. Because uh, my husband was only coming a year later anyways. So, uh, so we had that deal. So Athens was a lovely surprise. Uh, It's incredibly heterogeneous in terms of uh, the people you see here. And I'm not just talking about uh, demographics in terms of race, but all sorts, right? Uh, Very interesting people from everywhere. Um, And it's close enough to Atlanta that... Even though it's a small college town, uh, I could still, you know, if I was dying to be in a more urban place, I was still able to go to Atlanta. So that that was that was good at first, um, and I really I I really like Georgia to be honest. So now it's kind of like I like Georgia very very much. Um, obviously, there are areas of Georgia that are not 
don't fit the description of Athens and Atlanta, and you'll know this as well as I do, uh, because I'm, I'm assuming Wisconsin also has some areas that are incredibly homogeneous and conservative. But all in all, I, I felt at home. Like uh, while I was in Georgia, I had a like created a, a very nice group of of friends, and I ended up officiating three weddings. Um, so it, it became like a, a very nice, uh, close knit community. In fact, fantastic. Um, I'm curious. You know, you you lived in Georgia and Athens a little bit. You lived in London uh, from Portugal. What do you cook? Ah, uh, so a fun comfort food for me is uh, salted dry cod, uh, which sounds disgusting for most people, but it's like. So in Portugal, we have a, a very famous uh, recipe book that is a thousand and one ways of doing cod, which is like our most traditional kind of food because Portugal is by the sea. So by default, most of our diet is, is fish-based or seafood-based. And our cod, our salted cod, is like turkey in America, right? It's like for special occasions or when you're feeling like you need something to feel you know, warm, fuzzy and warm inside. So uh, cod, cod is my go-to meal when I, when I feel like I, I want some, a flavor of home. And uh, luckily, my mother-in-law, who's a lovely woman, sends us salted cod by, the, by post, by mail. Like once a month, we get a package of a very smelly package of, of salted cod. So there's never a shortage of cod. In yeah, fantastic. I don't eat turkey that often uh, as you eat cod, but maybe I should switch that around. My my habits, uh, which I would say of the Americas, maybe not uh, the U.S., chocolate uh, oh. that I Daily. But it's not a meal. Is that a meal? Does that qualify as a meal? Maybe. There are days where maybe chocolate could <laughs> be a meal. I, you know, I, I definitely have had those days. Um, so I... I am uh, not judging. Definitely. Oh, no, I am proud. I am yes, very proud should, about this. Yes, you should. You should. I have also just... Uh, every once in a while, I'll treat myself to uh, hot chocolate. And it's just water and uh, cocoa powder, really, you know, good quality cocoa powder, uh, cinnamon, cardamom, vanilla in there, nothing sweet. So that is your, that is your thing. Yes. That just perks me up and makes me so happy. Even in summertime too. I'm more of a hot drink than a cold kind of drink or, or food as well. So even in the summer, in the Georgia summer, like a hundred degrees and I would have like a hot drink and everybody around me is having their like cold sweet tea and I'm having my hot black coffee. So I completely understand that. Yeah. Yeah. More sweat cools you down. That's so, correct. Yeah. That's sure. right. That's we'll right. That. Yes. Now you're in Indiana. Do you go from Georgia to Indiana directly? Yes. Yes. Yeah, so uh, in 2018, um, I decided that I was going to apply for tenure track positions. So up to that point, I had uh, contract positions. So postdocs are generated in a way that they're kind of like three-year contracts normally, or it could be shorter. 
could be a little bit longer, of course, as well. But they're not meant, you're not meant to stay in that institution forever. You're meant to like decide whether you want to leave academia or you want to apply for tenure track positions. So in 2018, I had a conversation with my advisor, with my postdoc advisor, and uh, I decided to, to start applying for grown-up jobs, as I call them. Um, and, and one of them was, was Indiana. And, and that's, I applied to, to quite a few. I think I applied for 12, yeah, I applied to 12 positions, um, some in biology departments, some in schools of public health. And, and then I ended up accepting the offer from, from Indiana. Yeah. And you've been there for how long? I, I started in August, 2019. Okay. Uh, and then, um, the pandemic hit in February 2020. So yeah, not soon, not too, too uh, after I had started. So you quickly became uh, Indiana celebrity in some sort of ways. I, w- I wouldn't say that, I, but uh, it was interesting because now it's not the case anymore. Uh, and I'm very happy with that. But um, the School of Public Health uh, um, at IU, at Indiana University, didn't really have a long tradition of infectious diseases. Um, it was it, it started as a as a different type of public public health school, more looking at um, lifestyle, uh, kinesiology, so kind of like other types of components of of health, right? Um, so when I was hired, I was actually the only uh, infectious disease epidemiologist, if I could call myself that. But more importantly, I was the only modeler uh, with those kinds of skills at IU. So that lent itself for you know having meeting a lot of people very quickly. Because, you know, they either wanted to collaborate or I wanted to collaborate as well. And, you know, they wanted my opinion. And, you know, that that happened quickly. You're absolutely right. But then now we actually have a a more senior um, professor in our department who also does infectious diseases. So uh, I'm, I'm actually really happy with that. So I can share the load, share the love. Yeah, excellent. Yeah, it's been, I've uh, had a few professors that I've kept in touch with um, at the School of Public Health and also in biology. So I will go back to Bloomington every once in a while to check in. I haven't done it, you know, since the pandemic, but it'd be neat to go back and see. Uh, it's probably been three years since I've been back there. Ah, Just- so then when you come, because hopefully we'll all be vaccinated and a little bit more protected, then we can go for coffee. We can go to Soma. <laughs> yep, Absolutely. Um, and I've, I've never tried salted cod, so. I can cook for you. Definitely. I think we have a plan. Perfect. This is why I'm doing the podcast. It re- and That's right. You want a place to stay and a hot meal. Tell us the truth. <laughs> yeah. With, yeah, it's better than uh, grad school friends. You know, they have small apartments, but faculty, ah, great houses. They have, you know. Meals shift in from other countries. That's right. That's right. We know where it's at. <laughs> yeah. Um, 
Yeah, exactly. Uh, so, I, yeah, you were saying that you are one of the few people on campus who's doing a lot of modeling. So I do want to dive into now your design aspect that comes up with your data visualization. Sure. When did you start becoming fascinated with that? Um, has that grown as a passion throughout your career? Yeah, so I was not kidding when I said to you, hashtag never, never not color paletting. Um, I... I think that our job as scientists, when especially when we're reporting our work, our results, is to make it as clean and as easy to understand as possible. Because ideally, it's not just people in our field that will read it, but uh, especially in the realm of the work that I do, we want a kind of wide audience of people to see your work and, and hopefully get something from it. So visualization is a big part of it not just the attractive colors, but the clarity of how you present the work, which is actually more important. So one of my very favorite authors uh, that deals with that is actually a guy called Tufti. And he has four books on the art of visualization and science, which I recommend you have a quick look at some point. Um, and he's, he kind of, preaches, if I may say that word, this idea of minimalism that is impactful and that uh, images that stay in your memory, right? That you look at them and then if you see, see another one of that person, you're like, I know who did that, right? So, and that has been kind of like the, the way that I work. I have a very specific palette of colors that I use and I tend to kind of not really stir from stir away from those. And my my I try my best that my figures are very minimalistic, but that stay kind of like that you immediately see what I'm trying to do with as very few labels as possible. Mm -hmm. Yeah, what it's your signature palette colors. So I am, I'm very keen on the kind of like green, aqua green to forest green kind of palette, and then a complementary orange, rust orange, and bright orange uh, as complementary. I, I remember seeing on your website, um, great figures all around, but I think the one that's almost, I'm trying to remember what is this, uh, like a spiral? Ah, so yeah, so the... Yeah, so that that is um, I didn't design that. So that that's code, of course. That that was produced with with our code, but that was actually initially cre I extended that code, but it was actually uh, initially created by uh, a guy that has a, a blog called the Data Imagist, uh, and he actually works for our our development. Um, and there was a time where I was doing a lot more phylogenetic, phylogenetic trees. And that is actually a Pertussis uh, uh, phylogenetic tree of data from the Netherlands. Um, and for listeners who don't really know what uh, phylogenetic trees yes, are. I, yes, that you're absolutely right. So um, when you're doing surveillance, so let's, let's put it in the context of, of infectious diseases for now, and then we can go more in depth if you want. So when you're doing um, disease surveillance, you have different types of data that you can have. You can have case counts, so 
whether you're infected or not uh, daily or weekly. But you can also um, get samples of individuals that are infected to actually culture whatever pathogen they have. So you can have then kind of like a parallel timeline uh, of the cases and the actual signatures of the pathogen that we're interested in. So what we do with that, we reconstruct the molecular information uh, of those patients over time and try to understand whether the pathogen, let's say uh, SARS-CoV-2, the the causing agent of COVID-19, whether it's evolving over time. So phylogenetic trees give you kind of a picture of that timeline of how viruses in this case or any other pathogen or even any other being in general, how the population has changed over time. So then it's depicted as a tree because then the number of branches or the the heaviness of a branch tells you how fast or how slow uh, a population is changing over time. Right. Fantastic. I'm sure that'll actually help quite a few listeners to understand all these different variants that we're having right now and how they might be related. Exactly. So a, a good way of, of understanding the variants is, pre- is precisely like that. So we only know that there are different variants popping up in different countries or in different uh, areas of, of, of at a country precisely because we do genomic surveillance and we now try to understand how distant these new variants are from the first one that was identified in Wuhan, China. Mm-hmm. And on the same subject of COVID, um, you've been you know, contacted by media quite a few times um, and as a spokesperson sometimes for the university. Is it, does it give you energy? Does it take away energy? Hmm. It's it's a rush. It was it was terrifying at first. Uh, the first few times I got interviewed, uh, it took all my energy uh, because I was terrified of of not being clear. So not of saying the wrong thing because we all say the wrong thing all the time, right? So, but it was more like trying to say the right thing or saying the wrong thing, but not being clear. So it took a lot of like homework and a lot of, so at first you were saying, initially you were saying you were reading a lot of leadership books, right? So it took a lot of homework on my part to understand um, like sentences that journalists uh, or PR people can use that even if they're out of context, they are still clear and your message is not, at times not people's fault, but not distorted. Uh, So it took a lot of work to kind of try and speak like that uh, or write like that. So at first it took a lot of energy, but now it's exciting. And now it's, it's kind of like, it's gonna sound a little bit Miss Universe, but it's kind of part of, it's part of my job, right? And it's part of my mission. Uh, because the the realm that I work on, which is public health, means that whatever I do hopefully will have a consequence that is somewhat immediate, not always immediate, but somewhat immediate on the population, on people that don't understand 
what I do, like the nuts and bolts of what I do. Don't speak my jargon. So I was actually really happy you called me out on the phylogenetic trees, right? So now it's, it's more of like, okay, these things are happening. Uh, if, if I don't speak to this person who requests an interview, they might not get anyone, uh, which means that there's a bunch of people that are actually dying to understand what's really happening in the sea of all of this misinformation that might not get a chance to truly, you know, take care of themselves and, and protect the population around them if they don't really know the, the, the facts. So, yeah, so now it's more like an excitement. I, I, don't, I don't get to say yes to all the requests, um, but it's, it's not because some are like higher profile than others, but it's more like if they ask me in a, in a week that I simply cannot, uh, I, I, I sometimes have to say no. You're also mentioning like learning how to do this. Um, I ask this to uh, everyone I have on. Um, do you have a favorite failure or a failure that really shifted your life in a different direction? I don't know. I'm not sure if it's a failure, right? But um, an opportunity. Uh, maybe it's because of the way I, I look at my life, right? There were a lot of, uh, so when I was applying for fellowships after I finished my PhD, I actually didn't get the, my top three favorites. I didn't get them. Uh, but then I ended up writing a fellowship and, and working on bovine tuberculosis, which is completely, it was completely out of my realm of things because my PhD was in population dynamics of wild sheep and wild deer, right? So nothing to do with disease systems initially. So I guess maybe that was my failure, but I, I never really think of it as a, as a failure, more like a masked opportunity, I don't know. Um, so one thing you learn about me is that I'm a very positive person. So I, I don't I don't know like I, I don't really look at, at things like that as failure but maybe that was it I guess that was my favorite failure which was I didn't get what I thought I wanted and what I end up having as a as a first postdoc fellowship set me on the path that I am now otherwise I would still be chasing sheep somewhere in Scotland probably <laughs> yeah. Well, I think that's, you know, the way you're phrasing like a failure too is I, I asked this question to normalize that this happens. Oh yeah. All the time. Rejection all the time. But what I've very early on in life. Um, okay. So let's step back and I'll tell you why. So I, I did, uh, I was, I, I did fencing in school for many, many years and I was actually in the, in the Portuguese team uh, for fencing. And you win some, you lose some. And in the end, you know, you need to stay positive because there's always a, a, a bigger opponent or a faster opponent. And sometimes you are that person. A lot of times you are not, right? So I guess that allowed me to kind of put things in perspective that, you know, you're only as good as the people you are competing against or with. So sometimes you got come out on top, sometimes you're not, but it's all a ride, right? Um, but a life in academia is a life of rejection. It's like being in the music industry or being an actor, but without the money. 
right? So the norm is going to auditions and getting rejections. And for us, the norm is applying for grants or uh, submitting a paper and getting a rejection, right? It is, it is part of, of the gig, right? So for me, it's always been like, you know, I don't get it this time. I'll get it next time. I'm still having fun. And I will stop it if I stop having fun. Um, but to me, it's, it's about the, the joy of, of having this weird privilege of having a job where what I do for fun is sit and think. Right? I'm not a, a, a doer, right? I, I don't go out and do a manual job every day, right? Most of my day is thinking in front of a computer or in front of a board. So, yeah, but, but the rejection is, is definitely there. So you just have to weigh it, right? If you, if you think it's, it's, it's a part that affects you the most, maybe you should think about what really makes you happy. And I don't know, for me, life is chasing happiness, to be honest. It sounds ridiculous, I know, but it's, it is my thing. Like, if I'm not happy, I'm, I'm changing. Yeah, well, you have one life. <laughs> yeah, um, I'll ask you one more open-ended question and then I will move towards our game. I wanna, I wanna give you a real stumper here in my list, if I can but find bef one. Before we do that, I on purpose did not ask you what you want to do when you grow up, aka when you finish your PhD, because I think that's a question nobody should ask a PhD student. Uh, <laughs> it's hard enough to suffer through the ups and downs of graduate school, where sometimes you feel like you're on top of the world and sometimes you feel like you should quit and just, you know, I don't know, be a lifeguard. Um, so I did not ask that on purpose. It was not lack of curiosity on my part, but I think that that's not fair to ask you. Definitely not on a podcast. I would be, I mean, I will give you the answer that I have in my head right now. Uh, yeah. All right. Uh, which... I think I've really, I so I used to aim very very high um, and try to do a good job of setting the path to get to this really uh, lofty goal. So you know it was not out of the realm of possibilities for me to try to become like secretary of agriculture for like the USDA, which is really far up there. But I I've been interested in food and food systems for many many years at this point in nutrition. Um, you're in the right place for it. Yeah, Wisconsin yeah. is one of the best places for it. So true. Yes, and I've worked with um, some policymakers here too. Um, was one myself for a couple of years, and I just thought uh, with that path, you know, I just became less interested. Like you, you know, like you is bringing me less joy, less happiness. Um, not that it wasn't worthy of the cause, but it's just like my, my soul was not into it. Um, and now I think I've just become happier working on these projects that I just have more control and creative mm -hmm. freedom on. Yeah. Um, I, you know, my next steps could be a fellowship. It could be a postdoc. It could be this podcast takes off and turns into something. Um, it could be even researching this podcast as like an intervention to get people to uh, trust science more or as a uh, even like a, a way 
to improve mental health among graduate students, you have to try it out. Uh, and just, you know, like, like you were saying, you apply to a lot of things, you see what happens and you'll, you'll pivot and find out if something works for you and what doesn't. That's right. That's absolutely yeah. right. So are you on a high week or on a low week of your PhD? I'm, you know, honestly, I'm usually on a pretty high week all the time. Nice. Um, I'm generally a pretty positive person. Um, there were a few weeks ago when I had uh, a couple of guests cancel uh, a little last second. And then also I was debating like, oh, what the hell am I going to do in life? And so I was feeling a bit lost. But yeah. you know, my luckily, I've, you know, I've, I've done the work to get to the point where I can say to myself, I don't know right now that's okay with some asking of people who again are a little bit ahead of me in my career and just talking it out with friends like i will get to that point where i feel comfortable uh which is a very fortunate place to be i think yeah. uh at my age and you know in, in life in general as well um yeah. but that question of what do you want to be when you grow up um it's usually meant for uh my guess, because I, uh, yes. I'm with you, like it's a hard question to answer, and uh, no one stays in this one path. I think. Yeah, that's right. So, what do I want to be when I grow up? But, Are you yeah. asking me? Now it's your turn. So, if I keep doing what I'm doing, I will be very happy. I think that at some point, I would like to have a leadership role within academia. Um, I have a colleague, a very close friend of mine who I collaborate with, who, who's actually much more senior than me that keeps saying that I will be dean one day uh, because I, I am very kind of driven. I think that that could be a fun path in theory. I have no idea if it's a fun job or not. But maybe, I think maybe at some point a, a, a more, within research, but a more leadership position. Definitely within academia, I don't think I would fare well uh, in the real world. I think I, I like the protection of, of academia. Mm -hmm. I, and to add to the deanness of it, um, you're also very approachable, which I think is extremely helpful. And I think is being more demanded of younger faculty, people of my generation, and probably below, too. Yeah. Yes, I feel like I, I could you know, pretty much ask you any question, probably from the very beginning of the interview. Uh, and that's, that's, that's great to have uh, in a leader. Yeah, I mean, as long as we answer to the best of our ability, right, and making sure that we don't deceive on purpose, because sometimes accidentally you can maybe be less clear and, and deceive accidentally, but I don't know. Like, I think you are who you are, you get what you get. If people don't like it, tough. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You can only be yourself. Not everyone will like peaches. Yeah, that's right. Yes. All right, I'm going to head on to our game. So I actually have two mini games for you. Um, I couldn't decide which one to go with, so I, I went with both. Okay. The first game involves your love of fashion. Okay. And so I, I have a, a series of scenarios. Okay. And I would like to see what you may wear today. Okay. Sounds good. Okay. 
So the first scenario is you are accepting an award for being an exceptional woman in ecology. What would mm-hmm. you wear? A tuxedo. Tuxedo. Very nice. Bow tie? Yes, but undone. <sighs> nice. I, yeah, that is great. Okay, scenario two. You're accepting an award for being an exceptional woman in ecology, but your legs are tentacles. I would wear a very wide skirt, but showing the ankles of my tentacles. <laughs> very nice. Um, okay, scenario three. You are accepting an award for being an exceptional woman in ecology, but your legs and your arms are tentacles. That's, that's a, an interesting scenario. I'm not sure how I would move if I had both tentacles in my hand, in my legs, and in my arms. So I'm going to go with a 70s style, so early 70s, poolside California caftan. Uh, so those very like flowy kind of silky dresses. Because if I have both tentacles in my legs and my arms, I probably need a lot of space to move. Uh, but I would probably have it like with some sequence because it's after all an award kind of. And maybe to, you know, in this scenario, why, why not? Your, your, your tentacles uh, can change color too. So they can, they can match oh, your outfit. I love it. I love it. So then the sequences will be double-faced to reflect the colors of my tentacles. Okay. Fourth and final scenario. You can probably see where this is going at this point. Um, you are accepting an award for being an exceptional woman in ecology, but you're an octopus now. Oh, I'm not wearing anything. The bow tie still? A hat. I will wear a kind of like, um, I, don't, I don't remember exactly what the name in English, but I would wear those kind of like very French style beret, but hard hat. Um, I shall send you a photo later on, but it's kind of like very small. It sits just on the side of, of your head, especially if you're an octopus, I think it would go very well. And depending on where the awards would be, like what country, then I would probably pick a color of that country for the color. Yes. Very nice. See, this is why this is why I asked you. I knew you'd have really good answers. For, you're prepared for any sort of any uh, circumstance. scenario. Yes, that's right. <laughs> yeah. Okay, that's our first uh, game. Our second one is uh, an improv game, um, which I know it as press conference. So you, in this game, are going to embody a disease vector involved in a scandal being asked questions by the press i.e. me, but I'm not going to tell you which vector you are. I'm going to ask you questions and drop clues in the questions, uh, and the questions still need to be answered, but will also provide you uh, an opportunity to learn which vector that you are. Okay, sounds good. If you have uh, an idea, you can just shout it out. Okay. Do you feel like you need an example? I have one ready, if yes. necessary. Yes, maybe, okay. maybe. So I can ask you, uh, can you tell me the direction the wind is blowing as it certainly doesn't seem to be easterly? You might respond, you're right, the wind is not easterly, it is from the west. I can ask you, can you comment on the latest buzz about the incident down by the local pond? Yes, there is quite a lot of annoying humming going on over the past few weeks. Then you can guess, mosquito. Okay. Anna, the most recent scandal you've been involved in, you've been labeled as a freeloader. Uh, is that true? That's 
definitely not true. But in the event that is true, I will never admit to it. <laughs> okay, that's a strong defense. Um, I'm I'm anticipating the response for this might be similar too. But some of your critics have said uh, you suck. Um, is how do you respond to that? I'm a tick. You're a tick. <laughs> I will suck it and I will suck the blood dry of anyone that is passing by me. <laughs> yes, you're my least favorite vector. Oh, that is so unfair. They take a bad rap, but they're very interesting. Very interesting. And they're expanding. So, yeah, uh, both regionally and also when they suck your blood, which is one of the reasons I do not like them. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Okay, yeah, our second vector. Okay, here we go. Anna, I know you do a lot of good for the world, but how can you justify your actions this time? I was really hungry. Fair, fair. And maybe by eating a lot, uh, it has helped with your hair. I just want to say your hair looks amazing. Uh, is there anything you do to condition it? Snail mucus. Snail mucus, okay. Does uh, snail mucus have any hard solvents that's in there? Like sometimes if you have too much, your word, your world might be turned upside down if you're in a small room with a bunch of snail vapors. But I'm, I'm thinking about recommending this to my daughter, even though the actions you've done are, are, are terrible. Am I a bat? You're a bat. Yes. <laughs> All right. Yep, those are my games for you. I loved it. I loved it. Good. Yes, I'm glad you like those. It's always uh, a bit of a gamble, I think, bringing this to people, but it's part of let, letting go and seeing where the road goes. But your clues were good. Uh, I just needed to get in the right mind frame at first. I was like, what? What? <laughs> no. I don't add it. I don't know. Yeah. I don't speak English. I don't know. <laughs> um, well, Anna, I thank you so much for being uh, part of this podcast and Thank being you for on here. having me. I had the best time. Then, like, ask me anytime. And when you are in Bloomington, you have to hang out with me. We are going to grab some coffee and we're going to eat some cod. That sounds wonderful. And hopefully, it's sooner rather than later. Definitely. When are you getting your vaccine? Do you know? I am vaccinated. Oh, congratulations. Thank you. Uh, I got my first dose on two days ago. Two days ago. Congrats. So I am very excited. And now I'm 5G. So doubly <laughs> excited. Just want to be clear that this was a joke because there's so much disinformation out there. The 5G thing about a vaccine is completely made up and has no evidence. But if you get the vaccine, you might feel way better if you're already a cyborg. Uh, I <laughs> yeah. got Moderna. I, okay. I, I had what they had, right? There was no menu. Right. What did you get? So, uh, J&J. That was Ooh, on the menu. Nice. So you're done. I'm done. And, you know, uh, I was actually editing an episode for the podcast when I was starting to get the, the fever and chills oh, with you it. Got, you, got, you got bad side effects? Just for two days. And not even all of those two days and completely worth it. Completely worth it. Uh, yes, of course. I, I was completely fine. Uh, like my arm hurt for like two hours and then nothing. So 
I'm hoping I still am mounting a very strong immune response. Uh, but yes, yeah, so far, I, I guess for Moderna, it seems that the second dose is the one that may be causing uh, more side effects. So we'll find out. Uh, but I don't care. I was just so, so happy. The guy was like, are you nervous? And I'm like, no, I'm just super excited. And he looked yeah. at me like, you're weird. <laughs> yeah, I got a selfie. Oh, very nice. I couldn't because in the place where I took it, there was like no no photographs, no selfies. So I don't know why, but they weren't allowing it. So I took just a, a photo of my card. Yeah. Well, we'll put it to good use. That's right. Uh, That's months. right. Very yes. good. Thanks for listening to Deeper Than Data with Ben Rush. I hope you walk away thinking sometimes people are just pretty cool. Also, I hope you imagine your mentors, bosses, and heroes as Actified sometimes and realize you can get away with asking them about it on a recording that is spread around the entire world. Deeper Than Data with Ben Rush is produced and created by me, Ben Rush. Music by me, Ben Rush. Hypothetical Children, also by me, Ben Rush. And until next time, be well. And realize you can get away with asking them about being an octopi, being an octopus. <laughs> I hope you walk away. I hope you walk away. I hope you walk away. <laughs> Do you really have a daughter? Or was that for the podcast? Oh. No. <laughs> I was like, what? All right. Yeah, just making stuff up. That's right. Okay. Yeah. Because I was going to okay. like, oh, how old? I don't have children. So, I was, but I'm always curious when people kind of. Yeah. You're, of course, younger than me, but like, it's always. It's, yeah, possible. Uh, zero children. So I can always say, you know, well, my kid's never done that if someone else's kids are acting up. <laughs> I love that. How about that segue, huh? How about that segue, Daddy? How about that segue? Life is like a box of chocolates. You never know what you're gonna segue. Life is like a box of chocolates. You never know what you're gonna get. Governor. <laughs>